That being said, I shared with you guys a little bit earlier that I kind of had a home message planned out, and we were going to continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, but I, uh, I just think that, uh, that this message is appropriate for today. And uh, I think it touched the lives of our young adults yesterday who went on the retreat. And I think that it is so appropriate today. So we're going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark today. And we're going to preach an awesome message. The title of this morning's message is When My Dreams Have Died. When My Dreams Have Died. Isn't it funny? Don't you laugh? Don't you get a good laugh when they pull up America's Funniest Home Videos and things don't go according to plan, right? The guy slips up on the skateboard and ends up in the pool or something. And everybody gets a good laugh out of things not going according to plan. And we laugh at those But when your plans about important things don't work out, the reality is it's not funny at all, is it? It's not funny when the dreams for your marriage or your family falls apart. It's not funny when the dreams about your future or your career begins to crumble. It's not funny when your reality doesn't look like anything that you had hoped or planned for. It's not funny when you realize your dream is never going to come true. It can really throw you when what you hoped for and dreamed of quite obviously is not going to happen in your life. Maybe you've been seriously dating someone, maybe even got engaged, but now you know that this wasn't meant to be forever. Maybe you're not able to have children. Maybe you didn't get into the college you dreamed of. Maybe the financial plans that you had for your future are gone. And I can go on and on about the dreams that have died in people's lives. Most of you know what it means to face the reality that the plan, dream, or goal you had isn't going to happen or maybe even can't happen. Even if you're a Christian, it's difficult. You feel like God has promised you certain things. And when circumstances get messed up, And it's not going to happen. It's hard to know what to do with God and what to do with your faith. What do you do when your dreams don't and can't come true? How do you handle it when the things you hoped for, planned for, and dreamed of fall apart? And so we're going to talk about a biblical character. Maybe some of you guys have heard it. It is a a kid's story, but there is some powerful stories that are behind this. You ever heard of King David? He's the guy who knocked out Goliath. David became king when King Saul, the king over Israel, had committed suicide after he was wounded in battle. And David ruled for many years with great success. But the story we look at today is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And it's actually a really sad moment in King David's life. So if you have an e-Bible, if you have an app on your phone, if you have a paper Bible, I welcome you to join me. 2 Samuel chapter 15. And here's the picture that I want you to get in your head. King David riding on a mule headed out of Jerusalem. He's fleeing for his life when he realized that nothing that he had hoped for or dreamed of is going to come true. Can you imagine the thought in his head, my dream will never be realized? See, King David, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background here. King David had been promised by God that one of his sons would be heir to his throne. And naturally, he believed that his eldest son, Amnon, would be the one. 
But Amnon actually fell in love with his half-sister Tamar, David's daughter from another marriage. And Amnon, Amnon wanted Tamar, his sister, his half-sister, so badly that he came up with a plan. Amnon pretended he was sick and asked Tamar to bring him food. And when she got there, Amnon asked everyone else to leave the room, and he actually raped his sister. And David was furious but did nothing about it. We get to Absalom. Absalom was David's favorite son. Absalom was well-liked. He was a warrior. He had great leadership skills. Absalom actually reminded David of himself. And in his heart, David hoped Absalom would one day be king. But Absalom was Tamar's brother. And Absalom was angry at the rape. And he was angry at his father's inaction. And Absalom let two years go by and then invited all of David's children to a party. And there in front of the entire family, Absalom murdered his brother and then fled to a foreign city. And David missed his favorite son. In fact, the Bible said that David's spirit longed to go to Absalom, but he couldn't. He was the king and Absalom was a murderer. He would be forced to punish his son as a result of the crime he committed. And three years later, hoping everyone had forgotten, David called for Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. And Absalom came back, but David avoided him because of the murder. Finally, two more years passed, and David decided, it's been long enough. I'm the king. I'm going to give my son Absalom an honored and trusted position. And one day, I will raise this young man to be king. And for the next four years, David and Absalom worked together, and everything seemed to be going well. But there was a problem. Absalom was still angry, and he was still bitter at his father. And so Absalom went out as a judge and began to recruit his own followers. And before long, the people knew, if you want quick justice... You go to Absalom. You don't go to David because it's going to take too long. And over time, Absalom actually won over the hearts of the people. See, people still respected David as the king, but they loved Absalom. And Absalom wanted to be king, but didn't want to wait for his father to die. And so Absalom developed a plan to overthrow David and to take the throne by force. And so we pick up 2 Samuel 15, verse I just shortened all that up for you. And it says this, Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing of the matter. He fooled the nobles of Jerusalem to going out, not knowing what they were going to encounter, not knowing that they would justify the fact that he had just been crowned king. And while Absalom was also offering sacrifices, he also sent for David's counselor to come from Gilal, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. And a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the sword to the city. And the king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. And the king set out with his entire household following him. Let me paint this picture. 
It's an emotional picture. David gets a message. Absalom has won the loyalty of the people. He's about to bring an army, and he's about to throw you off the throne. And David began to think, and he began to realize there are really no good options here. If I stay and fight, the city will be destroyed no matter who wins. If David would go to war with Absalom, one of three things would happen. Either Absalom would be killed, David would be killed, or they both would be killed. And David looked into the future, and it was nothing like he had anticipated or planned. In fact, everything had gone wrong. And in that moment, David's hopes and dreams and his understanding and assumptions about how God would demonstrate faithfulness were destroyed. And David and his family packed up their stuff, loaded up the donkeys and mules. They headed out of town. And verse 23 says this, and the whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. And people lined the streets, weeping and mourning as the king fled for his life from his own son. And as David rode out of town, he had to be wondering, how did this happen? God, how could this possibly turn out for good? Maybe you can relate to emotions like that. Your dreams aren't going to come true. The relationship isn't going to work out. You're not going to get that job that you hoped for. You're not going to get into that school. Your finances aren't going to recover the way you thought it was. At some point, after we are disappointed, the frustration and shock of the disappointment go away, and we begin to get angry. Because we begin to say, life was not supposed to turn out this way. If you're not a Christian, you don't know who to be mad at. You aren't even sure if there is a God. But if there is, you'd like to give him a piece of your mind. And if you are a Christian, it's frustrating. You just know God is to blame. He's sovereign. He could have stopped it. True. But you might have had a part. You might have made mistakes. But regardless, you know God could have stopped it. God could have stepped in. God could have intervened. He knew how important this was to you. He knew how much you hoped for this. You invested your life into this. You made so many sacrifices to get here, and you get mad. If God is out there, why doesn't he do something? How can God just stand back and watch my life go to pieces? If after all my faithfulness, if after all my prayers, this is what I get, then forget it. I'll just go do anything I want. Who cares about the consequences? They can't be worse than what I'm living through right now. When dreams die, too many people decide to break the rules and do what they want. And the thought is this. If this is what I get for being faithful, if this is the reward for my faithfulness, then I'm done. You waited for the right guy. Now you're almost 40 years old and you're still waiting. What use was purity? You were going to be the leader of your home, but you couldn't please your wife, and so now she's gone. You were faithful to your spouse, and now they've been unfaithful to you. You were faithful at work. You stood for integrity. They fired you anyway. You told the truth. They lied, and it seems like everyone believes the lie. You did your best, and your best wasn't good enough. And so you say, way to go, God. What's the point? This isn't getting me anywhere. If you can't do better than this, then I'm taking over. I'll find the wife on my own. I can get a job on my own. God, if you aren't on my team, more on my team than this, I'll do my own thing. I'll take care of it myself. 
And what happens in your relationship with God is actually really what's similar as to what happens in relationships between teenagers and their parents. Remember when you felt like your parents treated you unjustly? Maybe you grew up in a home where there was a lot of abuse. Or maybe you grew up in a home where there was a lot of good times. But still there were moments that your parents came down hard on you. And when that happens, there's always a common reaction. You may not have said it this way, but here's the thought. Let me define it for you. Okay, if you're going to treat me that way and hurt me like that, I'll get even with you. I'll hurt myself. A lot of your problems morally, maybe folks who had issues with drugs, life-controlling behaviors, and it's weird. It's a weird way that says, I'll teach you, I'll hurt me. In fact, we have a whole definition for this in our society. People who struggle with self-mutilation, rampant in young people. And the same thing sometimes happens in your relationship with your heavenly father. When your dreams can't come true, there is a temptation to say, God, what is the point of this? I'm going to do my own thing. I can handle my life better than what you've been doing. And the tragedy is, is that thought pattern still doesn't put your broken dreams and shattered world together. That doesn't restore what you've lost. It doesn't heal your hurt. In fact, it sends you down a path that leads to more pain, more consequences, and more sin. And ultimately what it does is it creates a cynical and bitter person. And let me tell you, I understand you. It's understandable why you would go down that road. You lost your world. You lost what was important to you. You got run out of your kingdom, your family, your business, your inheritance. Whatever it was you thought you had coming to you. It's difficult to maintain faith in a sovereign God who would allow these types of things to happen. Fortunately for David, he'd been there before. See, when David was younger, he was run out of Jerusalem, but that time by King Saul. The first time around, David's response was, God, if that's the best you can do, I'm going to take control, and I will handle this from here. And David made a series of horrible mistakes with huge consequences. And David had learned his lesson. And now later on in his life, looking back on a mule headed out of Jerusalem, David decided, I'm not going to throw away my faith in God this time. I'll not use this as an opportunity to turn my back on him. I've been there, I've done that, and I know where this goes. Verse 23 picks up, and we'll read from there. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the desert. And Zadok was there. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the ark of Zadok is the priest. They're carrying the ark of the covenant out of Jerusalem, and they're taking it with them. And the priest went with David, and they were with him. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar, a priest, began to offer sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. The Ark of the Covenant was a sacred box that housed God's presence. And wherever that box went, God's blessings followed. And whoever had that box was in good shape. And David and his group said, you might run us out of town, but we're taking the box with us. You might leave other stuff, but we're not going to leave the box. We've got the box, so in the end, we will win. You may have the throne, but we have the presence of God. Sounds good, doesn't it? But when they got to the river and they put the box down, and the priest started doing sacrifices, 
when worship was done, David sensed that he was making a mistake. David realized that he was once again. See, sometimes our manipulation of situations is outright. And other times it is subtle. It is inherent in our minds that we are the ones that need to have control. And so David realized he was trying to manipulate and control the situation again. The glory of God was supposed to reside in Jerusalem. The box was supposed to stay there. And David told the priest, verse 25, take the ark back into the city. And these are probably the key verses that I think you should pay attention to. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. Verse 26, but if he says, I am not pleased with you, if God says, I am not pleased with you, here's David's response, then I am ready. And here's the key phrase that David says, really pay close attention to this. And he says after this, let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And this is the key. This is how to respond when your dreams have died. And let me warn you, this is going to feel like an incredibly oversimplified answer to a complex issue. But I want you to stay with me. David was saying to God in that moment, here are my plans. Here are my hopes. Here are my dreams. This is the vision. This is what I assumed you wanted for my life. This is what I envisioned and dreamed of, what I hoped for. But God, I trust you. I still trust you. You take this and you do whatever you want with it. And here's the key. You've probably heard this a dozen and one times before. Not my will, but your will be done. Do to me whatever seems good to you. David says, guys, send the box back. I'm putting my hopes, my dreams, and my life in God's hands. That's incredible. And you know what happened? The decision created the context for God to answer David's prayers and ultimately fulfill his promises. If your dreams have died, I want you to learn from three mistakes that David avoided. First, David didn't base his faith in God on the fulfillment of his dreams. You've been there before. You've tied your faith in God to the fulfillment of your dreams. David didn't say, if my dreams go away, then my faith goes away with it. If God doesn't answer my prayer the way that I think he should, I can't trust him anymore. David avoided the mistake of basing his faith on his dreams being fulfilled. It's a mistake that people make. And oftentimes what happens is when your dreams fall apart and it doesn't happen the way you wanted it to, your faith gets shipwrecked. Second, David didn't base his faith around his assumptions about how and when God would fulfill his promise. I'm going to repeat that again. David didn't base his faith around his assumptions about how and when God will fulfill his promise. David had a promise from God just like you and I do. David assumed he knew how and when God would do it. And if you ask David this question, if you had asked David previous to this story, how will the air, this heir on the throne work out? David would have said to the person asking, well, I have a firstborn son. His name is Amnon. I'm going to teach him the ways of being the king. He's going to grow up, and he's going to be the king. Now, when that didn't work out, David would have told you about plan B. Well, there's still my son Absalom. God can use him. He will be the king, and that's how I think God is going to fulfill his promise to me. One of the most difficult things that we face is when a dream dies. And there is no dream or picture to replace it. 
when there is no plan C in our life. Not only has a dream died, but you do not have a clue what you will do instead. And fortunately for David, his faith wasn't based on this assumption about when and how God would come through. Just because David's plan went sideways, he didn't lose his faith in God's ability to fulfill his promise. God had promised, God's promised us in Scripture. Here's God's promise to us, to you and me in Scripture. I will never leave you or forsake you. But here is how you and I define that. You ready? If God is not going to leave me or forsake me, that means I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to live a long life, a happy life. I'll find a wonderful spouse. My kids will be healthy. My marriage will stay together. My kids will grow up and do all the things that I ever envisioned for them to do. And I will be a success in my job. And I'll have a great and comfortable retirement. And my life is just going to be hunky-dory. Isn't that right? Isn't that how we really interpret God's promise to us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us? And so when that idea of what we have that God should be doing in our life is shaken up, our faith gets shaken up too. That's exactly how we want God to never leave us or forsake us. See, you have assumptions about how God will fulfill that promise in your life. What a mistake it would be to assume your understanding of God's care in your life is the right way. Your timetable is his timetable. See, God, David didn't confuse his assumptions about God's plan with what reality was God's plan. Do you see the difference? The lesson will change the way that you react to bad news. It'll change the way that you react to life storms. You no longer spend the time and energy of your life saying, why God? But instead spend it praying for strength and asking, God, what is next? I'm ready to move forward. The third mistake David avoided is he didn't take matters into his own hands and try to make everything happen his own way. David looked at the ark and said, we're going to let God do what he wants to do. We're not going to try to take control over the outcome. And he sent the ark back to Jerusalem. Some of you are thinking, and some of you may have that military mindset the way I do. Well, that sounds a lot like giving up. It sounds like just saying, hey, whatever. But the truth is, it's not that at all. It's praying for God to give you a vision for your life, your marriage, your relationships, your finances, your ministry, your future, all those things. And then after it, with all you've got. So once God gives you that vision, running after it with all you've got. There's a saying in Spanish. My, my grandfather used to say this. My great-grandfather, adios orando y con el mazo dando. And here's what it means. To God praying and with the hammer hitting. In other words, I'm praying for God to do something, but I'm going to continue active. I'm going to do everything I can so that I can head in that direction that I feel that God is taking my life in. But through it all, your prayer must be, God, this is what I'm going for. But bottom line, you do unto me whatever you think is best. Not my will, but your will be done. When I'm trying to make some difficult decisions, I find myself praying, God, show me your will. I want to follow your will, not my plan. See, you have an option. Some of you are right in the middle of this. You can let your emotions sweep you into self-destructive behaviors and relationships. You can walk away from God's purpose and plan because your plan didn't work out. It didn't happen the way you expected or it's not happening as quickly as you thought it would. And you can get mad and you can end up giving up or you can be like David. 
or like some of the people around you. Sometimes we don't know the people that we worship with in church. What I've learned as a pastor is there's nobody who's a number. There's nobody who is a sin that we can label. Everyone has a story. There are people behind things. There are emotions behind things. And you can learn from some of the stories of the people that are here. People who might have lost their spouse or lost a child but didn't lose faith. People who got a bad report from the doctor but didn't lose their faith. God got cheated out of money and their business and almost went into bankruptcy but didn't lose their faith. We got people like that up in this church who lost important relationships, money or dreams but they did not give up on God. I want to encourage you, God can handle your issues. And so I encourage you to say this. This is a good way to think about it. Choose to say, God, I hate this. This really stinks. This is not what I hoped for. This is not what I dreamed of. This doesn't make sense at all to me right now, but I am not going to turn my back on you. I know where that leads. Heavenly Father, do to me whatever seems good to you. I trust you. As a pastor, I get to see people at their worst. By the time they call me, many times it's over. But every person I've met, who was able to survive and even thrive in incredibly difficult circumstances, came to the point where they said, not my will, but thy will be done. When I was in the military, they do something called smoking you. If you've served or know a veteran, what that means is that they will put you through a torturous, they will make you do push-ups until your arms collapse. At some point in the middle of that, at some point in the middle of going through all the training, I had to decide in my head, I can't do this on my own. I really want to give up. I really want to go home. The only way that I'm going to make it ahead and make it forward is, is, is if I believe that something there, there's something greater out there that is pushing out for me. And I can't do it on my own, so not my will, but your will be done. And that's not giving up. That's having faith and trust in a loving Heavenly Father who understands what's best for you. God, even though I don't understand it, even though it's not what I would have designed, I accept it and I trust you. That day next to the river, David saw what was happening and said, I'm not going to try to take over. Send the ark back. If God chooses to return me to Jerusalem and my kingdom, so be it. And if not, So be it. I'm trusting God. I'm putting my faith in him. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't you like to be there to live and trust like that? You say, Pastor Tom, that doesn't seem possible. The Apostle Paul endured horrible circumstances. There's no way that Paul, looking at his life, would have said, hey, I love to be beaten. I love to be in riots and shipwrecks. I love to be in prison. And sure, at the end of my life, why don't you chop my head off and I'll be great with it. That wasn't the script or the design that the Apostle Paul would have had for his life. Yet the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, and we absolutely love this, this scripture. It says, we know that in all things, 
God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And we're going to jump to verse 31 here. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So in light of that, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37 picks up, knowing all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what this man who wouldn't have chosen to get beaten, wouldn't have chosen to spend entire segments of his life in prison, wouldn't have chosen to be executed as a result of his faith. The man who wouldn't have designed any of that for his life, but learned to live through it, wrote these words. I want to ask the worship team to come forward. Even when you cannot see the plan or understand the plan, even when it seems like everything is falling apart, I want you to know this. God is on your side. God is fighting for you. Nothing can separate you from his love, the love that he demonstrated on the cross. And if your dream has died, I want to remind you that God still has a plan for you, that you can trust him. He loves you, and he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. came to send his son to die for you so that he can have a relationship with you. That's his longing. That is his desire. He didn't have to do what he did. Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. He died on the cross. He rose again because he desired you. I firmly believe this. The Bible is God's love letter to humanity. It's God's desire to reach out to people, to take all people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue to him so that they might live in eternity with him. I don't know about you, but there's something beautiful about a place where there is no weeping, no disease, and where God is supreme. That's his promise to us.